talk about um, King Hezekiah and the growth of Jerusalem. As we said uh, in our previous lecture, that um, Solomon and David were said to be this golden age. They established Jerusalem, they established a temple, they established a palace, um, and then um, Solomon dies, Rehoboam takes over, the kingdom split in two, and then we go through a hundred years of the north developing a, a very industrial country, a lot of success, um, a lot of trade with the north, right, with the Phoenicians and with other, other countries to the north. Um, they had all kinds of success. They were big, 12, 10 tribes, a lot of land. The south, Judah, didn't have as much success. It was kind of an ag area. It was up in the hills. It was kind of considered undeveloped backwater, kind of like where I'm from, at least what people make fun of my hometown. Um, it's not like a metropolitan city, urban like San Francisco, or like you have in Hollywood and Los Angeles. Um, it's Fresno, right? Judah's kind of this slow place where you do farming, and uh, Israel's kind of this kind of place to be. The only problem is, is that from a religious perspective, the South is going to end up telling the story. And what do we know about winners and history? Winners get to tell the history according to their point of view. Until you get to Howard Zinn and you know, People's History of the U.S., where you have this movement for, how about we tell the history of the people from a minority standpoint, or from one of the people who's quote unquote one of the losers, one of the people who were marginalized? Right? That's a very popular method of uh, telling history today. But for the most part throughout history, winners tell the history. And since Judah ended up winning, and I'll show you how in a second, um, they saw the North as not only rebellious against not only Jerusalem, but against God, but also idolaters. A lot of the evidence we have of Israelite people, Jewish, what would come to be the Jewish people, worshiping other gods um, comes from the North. And so they saw them as rebels. Okay? Now we're going to look at how, how Jerusalem grew. This is the last slide, don't write it down, of the, of the lecture before. Right? So you have this divided kingdom. Rehoboam took over for Solomon, decided not to listen to his father's advisors, who said Solomon was basically a jerk. They listened to a young, kind of young brash advisors, the Ronald Emanuels of the world, and they said, no, we got to go off and you know, prove ourselves and make our own mark. And of course, the kingdom split in two. Okay? They followed these people, uh, this guy named Jeroboam, and then Omri and Ahab and all these folks down uh, in the north. Pharaoh Shishak came in a day. We talked about that. Maybe that's where the Ark of the Covenant disappears. Maybe. Maybe not. Um, but we have these alternate Judean shrines in Arad and Beersheba. So not only do you have shrines going up in the north at uh, Bethel and Tel Dan, but you also get some other shrines coming in at Tel Arad at Beersheba. So basically, God or gods are being worshipped, is or are being worshipped all throughout the land. Okay. And Jerusalem is the capital of the smaller kingdom of Judah. Okay. Any questions? I'll leave it for five seconds of time. Okay. Now, what are some of the things you can do to create a golden age? One thing you can do is die. I can just die, right? So we tend not to memorialize people while they're still living, although there is this movement to actually honor people while they're still alive. Um, usually you have to die before people start making coins of you or handing you prizes. Unless you're Barack Obama, of course, and you just get the Nobel Peace Prize a few months in. And I, I didn't say whether I agree with that or not. Um, sometimes you have to do things, live a long time, and then die. 
and be nominated uh, for this. Another thing you need to do is you need to build great policies in antiquity, right? Um, you need to build a lot of things, right? Who do we remember? Right? I think it's important to remember the Mother Teresa's of the world, right? The Gandhi's of the world. They didn't leave a lot of big structures. They didn't build a lot of monuments to themselves, right? They did good for other people. And that's what we remember them for. But throughout history, if we notice, when we go to Europe or when we go to Asia and we look at all the touristy things, what do we look at? Monumental buildings. Wow, pyramid. Cool. When we go throughout Europe, wow, old castle. Wow, another old castle. Right? We, we look at things that are built big. This is why people like to build bridges and like to build palaces and first castles, right? Things like that. For some reason, that's what we're drawn to. We're impressed by it. Okay? So you got to build a lot of key places. One is you got to do something that unites people. Okay? So we, may, we might criticize, and, and both Democrats and Republicans have criticized uh, Obama getting the Nobel Peace Prize because it kind of made him up in a no-win situation, right? He couldn't decline it, but he also couldn't say, look at all the great things I've done. So it kind of sucked that he was nominated for it and won it, but of course he accepted it graciously. Um, we're also, he's credited with kind of bringing the nation together, at, a, at least for a, a while there, at a time when we were divided over the Iraq war and things like that. Okay? And just using this as an example, when you, I don't care what your politics are. And so usually people who are uh, considered in a golden age unified the people. They, they did something to bring black and white, or to bring Republican and Democrat, or bring whatever it is, young and old, together. Okay? And we have evidence of that. And then, of course, you can build something great for the people, not just for yourself, like a palace or a castle, but some great public work. And Solomon, of course, built the great temple. It's described in 1 Kings 6 and 8. Now, what else you need to do, the other thing you need to do um, is tell people that you've built something great for them, right? It's not enough, when you watch people running for office, they don't just pass a piece of legislation legislation, and then help people, right? What do they do about six months after that when it's time to be reelected? They remind you everywhere they go that they did that, right? I lowered your taxes, I created 10,000 jobs, right? I stopped corruption, whatever. And then they go to the next city, right? I lowered your taxes, I. Why do they do that? Because you've got to tell the story. Otherwise, it will just get lost. So, and let me just give another little 20-second pitch. You guys here are on are, are the generation that is going to redefine how we do media, if you don't already know this. Because you have things like blogs and Twitter accounts and things like that. And the day that all of you kind of get together on the same page and start writing the stories, not from the corporate media standpoint, but your own stories. That's a lot of power now. How you organize a bunch of people who, you know, the blogosphere is usually freewheeling and, and got their own ideas. Whoever can organize all of you, the blogs and the Twitter and all that stuff, you win. You're the next Google. So go get them. But, um, um, you know, we're at this point where you guys are now telling your own stories. And those stories aren't usually, or don't have to be, or as we're seeing, aren't. The same old story that we've been told when we were raised. As you, at, at this time period, as you begin to travel and as you begin to learn new ideas and new thoughts, you're going to question all those stories that you were taught. I don't care if they're religious or political or historical or what. And I encourage you to do that. Write things down. 
right? Go and look at these stories, re-examine what you've been taught, look at the evidence, and write it down. Think about it, right? Who knows how what the next generation is going to look like because you guys are all finally writing stories. I, my generation, we watched MTV back when they had videos. Right? They don't do that anymore. But MTV actually had videos, and we just sat there. Okay? This generation is not only can be creative, but can be created publicly. And so tell the story. Tell the story. Yeah. I found it interesting. I read an article recently that the Library of Congress is going to archive all the Twitter messages that have ever been posted. They're going to try to archive all the Twitter messages ever posted? Yeah, they're going to. Will you ask them to leave mine out? <laughs> and, uh, I, yeah, that's, I mean, it's going to happen. Right? That's the other thing about writing things down is never, ever, ever say anything in an email or a tweet that you don't want everybody to read. I don't care. There is no such thing as anonymity. There is no such thing as anonymity online anymore. There is no such thing as anonymity online anymore. And we can have a whole other lecture on how I can prove that, um, or if you've read any of that. Uh, there's no such thing as anonymity. If you're not willing to say it publicly, don't say it. I think that's a good rule for life anyway, just to the internet to prove it. Don't say anything, don't write an email, don't ever say anything you don't want the world to see. <coughs> that includes text messages, answers on uh, answering machines, anything else that I don't want to pick on a golfer. But you, you don't want to leave that kind of stuff around. Right? Don't cheat on your wife. Right. The internet is going to correct a lot of people. It's, it's going to, you know, there's a lot of big brotherness, but it's going to, it's going to correct a lot of things. So one of the things is anonymity. Uh, somebody had a question. No. Okay. I must have addressed it with my segue or my um, diversion to talking about anonymity. Okay. So you've got to tell people about it. So you build a great temple and then you tell people. By the way. There's a divine promise from God that says Jerusalem is the eternal kingdom and the, the, the house of David will rule forever. And then you've got to remember that promise. So Solomon actually builds the temple a generation later and says, we remember the promise in 2 Samuel 7, and now this has been fulfilled, right? Just as God promised, I have delivered. And then you've got to chronicle the promise. You've got to make sure that the royal archives are full of remembrances, right? So what do we do? Every 4th of July, we have a holiday. Every Thanksgiving, we have a holiday. We tell that story, as accurate or as inaccurate as it may be, right? Every Veterans Day, we memorialize. Every Memorial Day, we memorialize. And we do this annually. Festivals and holidays are to help us remember things that happened a long time ago. And that's what we see in Jerusalem. And surprise, they all point back to 2 Samuel 7. And to the episode we're going to learn about today. Any questions? Jerusalem grows towards the west. The bulk of Jerusalem's population used to live in the city of David, which this is a modern map, obviously, but used to live in the city of David. As cities expand, they've expanded towards the western hill. And as I've said, Zion moves. In antiquity, prior to this point, Zion was always the temple, the eastern mountain. But over time, it has moved to the west. So if you get in a cab at Mingurian Airport today and you say, take me to Mount Zion or the Zion Hotel, they'll take you to the Western Hill, not the Eastern Hill. So holy places migrate every once in a while. Jerusalem expands to the Western Hill in the 8th century. Everybody got that? Yes? 
when you say moon, did it move like geographically or the name Zion? The name. You're going to see a transition. Uh, it used to be. It used to talk about a lot of the early texts. One of the ways that you can differentiate early texts in the Bible that pertain to Jerusalem or to the temple specifically from later texts is that early texts talk about, and I will create a temple, and God you know, can reside there, and I will build a temple for you, God, you know, that thing. But later texts talk about God's name. I will build a temple for your name. Basically, at some point, there, became, there, there came this idea that gods really don't live in temples. Why? Why did they come to that conclusion? If gods live in temples, yeah. Temples are destroyed. And if temples get destroyed, then God let his house be destroyed. He must not be a very strong God. So over time, after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, most likely, um, there became this idea that, well, God, gods don't live in houses. They live in the sky, but their names live in houses. God's name is worshipped. Not God, but God's name is worshipped in houses. So we'll see later texts in Chronicles and Kings that talk about, uh, I will build a temple for your name. Right? And that's where you will be worshipped, not, not, not that's where you will live. Whereas early on, David said he wanted to build a temple what? For the Ark of the Covenant, right? I will build you a house. And God says, you're not going to build me a house. I don't want a house. What do I want a house? Right. Okay, so we'll see that. It, it, the name is what, is what uh, moves. Um, print this out. Don't don't know when to write it down because I want to move on. But basically, here's a nice little uh, progress chart to the 8th century. You have the United Monarchy from 110 to about 930, David and Solomon. That's called the United Monarchy, or the Golden Age. Then you've got the division into two states at about 925, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel will also come to be called Samaria. So the Samaritans, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's a guy from the north. After these two nations, if you can follow the map, with the ten tribes and the two split, in 925, they, they, they remain basically... Uh, two separate places all the way down uh, well, forever, basically, until the modern state of Israel. Right? So they remain two different places. So it should come as no surprise that what we know to be Jews at the time of Jesus didn't like the Samaritans in the north. Why? They considered themselves two different peoples. Why? Because they rebelled all those hundreds of years ago. And the, the people in the north, Israel, Samaria, they set up other worship sites. Therefore, they must be worshiping other gods. That must, therefore, they must not be like us. And then you always want to see ethnic differences. It's not enough to just be ideologically different. Over time, you want to see ethnic differences. You can hate them more and not like them. Okay. So that's where Samaritans come from. And then, of course, we get to the 8th century BCE. The Assyrians become the dominant empire, if you will. The Egyptians were kind of an empire early, early on. You know, everybody knew they were powerful. They kind of controlled everything. Egypt waned, late Bronze Age. All these different people start popping up in this land, right, in Israel between the north and Egypt and the south. Um, and Assyria becomes the next big thing in the 8th century, which resulted in the growth and the urbanization of Jerusalem and the rise of King Hezekiah the new Messiah. Remember, we can call him a Messiah. Why? The Bible calls him a Messiah. Why? All kings are anointed. Every king of Israel is the anointed one at one point because he's the king. He's anointed. Okay? All right. Let's move on. 
the Assyrian menace to society. Uh, I showed you early on, the first week of class, the Fertile Crescent, right? This is all desert. Desert, desert, you know, Iraq, Syria, Jordan. This is all desert. So you have these two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, that are responsible for all the water up here, that are responsible for uh, inhabitable land. Okay. And then, of course, you've got some water. You've got here, just uh, south of Damascus, just west of Damascus and south. You've got Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in the region. And the water from there flows down to the lowest point on Earth, the Dead Sea. So it makes uh, it's, it's no wonder that the highest point with all the snow on it, and yes, this is Israel's ski resort up here in the Golan Heights. Syrians say it's Syria's ski resort, but the Golan Heights are disputed. You could write your paper on that. Um, uh, and then the water flows down here. So this is very fertile, just like it's very fertile up here. Okay? And Assyria comes to power in the basically in the yellow areas that you see here. So under Sargon II, um, you see this large yellow area became the Assyrian Empire. Okay. That's as big as it got. Um, the purple part there is uh, Tiglath-Pileser III, who you'll learn about a little bit today. So the Assyrians, Assyrian, not Syrians, <coughs> Assyrians with an A, okay, kind of become the dominant power in the 8th century. Okay. Now, don't need to write them down, just print it out off the course website. That's why I do it. Um, you have, in about 745, the rise of this Assyrian Empire with Tiglath-Pileser III, or TP3, if you just to abbreviate. He conquers Damascus, which is up in you know, modern northern uh, Syria, uh, and Lebanon, that area. Phoenicia, which is Lebanon. Galilee, which is northern Israel. Okay. Uh, then comes Shalmaneser V. He conquers and exiles Samaria. Remember when I told you that Jew Jerusalem, Judah, the little two tribes in the south, ultimately were considered the winners? That's because Israel, the north, this class is not about that part of the country, but that north got so big and so strong and so cool and so you know rich that when the Assyrians came, they took it, they conquered it, and flattened it. So now you've got these 10 tribes that quote unquote rebelled from Jerusalem, from Judah, from Rehoboam, and the, the house of David, right? They rebelled and now they're conquered while Jerusalem didn't get conquered. So guess who writes the history? The, the Jews in the south. And so that's how we get this, you know, they were the losers because they got beat by the Assyrians. Well, if Jerusalem's one-tenth the size of Israel, and if Israel's such a big cool deal, and it should be no problem to wipe out Jerusalem, right? That's what we'll talk about today. Sennacherib comes along in 705, conquers Philistia and Judah, Philistia being kind of the modern Gaza Strip, the, the western coast of Israel, uh, land Gaza. And then Esarhaddon, his son, comes along and conquers Egypt. <coughs> These guys just started, remember our map? Remember our map back here? They started over here, and they just started wiping things out. Syria modern-day uh, Lebanon, and then Israel-Palestine, and then they came back and got Egypt. Okay, I put in yellow the ones I want you to know, Sennacherib and Esarhaddon. That's what we're going to talk about now. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, how the Assyrians fought battles. You remember earlier I talked about how the United States fights battles, the modern countries fight battles? We, we do more of this liberating, peacekeeping stuff. We might invade a country, but we always do it to give the country back to the true people. Right? 
So we go into Iraq to liberate Saddam Hussein, uh, people from Saddam Hussein. We go into Afghanistan to liberate them from the Taliban, right? We never take it. We always want to give it back to the people. This is completely foreign throughout all of history, okay? When the Assyrians came, not only did they want to take your land, they wanted to scare everyone so that no one would ever even dare rebel against them. It's like the arguments in favor of the death penalty, right? Not only do we want to take care of this criminal who will kill people if we let him out again, but we want to act, have that death as a deterrent to scare everybody else to not do crimes. Well, here's how the Assyrians did this. Um, here you see a monumental inscription, right? Because in the, in the ancient world, when you conquered someone, you bragged about it a lot. So you have Shamanese the third black obelisk. It's great, they tall, um, very phallic thing that, that you stand up and you write all the cool things that you did, right? Uh, now this is actually from the annals of, of Shamanese, from his uh, royal records. But here's how he describes fighting, right? I felt their fighting men with the sword, rained down upon them destruction as the god Adad would, piled up their bodies in ditches, filled the extensive plain with the corpses of their warriors, and with their blood I dyed the mountain red like wool. Right? Um, Aramu, in order to save his life, ascended a rugged mountain. I trampled his land with a, a vigorous virility. That's always sexual terms, right? With this, look how vigorous I am. Vigorous virility, like a wild bull, and laid waste his cities. And on, and on, and on, and on, and on. You get the hang of this? If you don't believe me still, this is from uh, Shamanazer's uh, Royal Annals. Let's look at some of um, the reliefs. So not only do you write text to tell which, but you drew pictures, right? Just to illustrate what would happen. So here in this relief, you can see Jewish exiles being led away to Assyria. If you didn't wipe people out, I mean just dye the country red with their blood, what you did was you always exiled them. I think in modern terms we would call it ethnic cleansing. This was just standard procedure back in the day. What you did is you either killed them, uh, reproduced, mated, or, or, or it's a, there's no nice way to say it. It's an atrocity, right? You bred with them, right, to, to make to get some of your genes, your dominant Assyrian genes, into this stupid population that you're conquering, whoever it might be, and that way they've at least got their children, their, you can breed out, if you will, some other ethnicity by just raping them repeatedly, repeatedly. So that was one weapon that was used. Or you exile them. How do you reward? How do you pay all of these soldiers who are fighting these battles for you? What you do is when they conquer a land, you take the people who were there, especially the nobles, the small ones who could lead, and you exile them to some other land where they don't have their network of friends and their network of power. You put them in some poor land. And then you take that land and you give it to your soldiers. You resettle it. So now this is not just an Assyrian occupied land, it's got Assyrians living in it. That's how you build a kingdom. It was horrible. Sex was a weapon, rape was a weapon, murder was a weapon, uh, exile, ethnic cleansing was a weapon. That's how these guys fought. Unlike today where none of this stuff happens anymore, right? This stuff never ends. This is what we're trying to fight against. This is what we're trying to stop, these kind of atrocities. And yet, this is how Assyria did business. <laughs> so they wiped out all these areas that became Jerusalem. Um, 
And they would not only want to kill you, they want to kill you in such a way that you would be afraid. Well, at least those who survived would be afraid. So you often see reliefs of Assyrians when they're marching. You might as well, if you're going to march back with your spear, you might as well take some of the soldiers you just killed, put them on the spear, and march back with them up on the spear. It's called impaling your opponents. So here they are. It's kind of like crucifixion. Basically, you hang somebody on a stick. Either they're already dead, or that's how you're going to kill them. You impale them, you stick them up, and they die up there. The birds pick at them, and they eat. And so the idea is not just to kill your opponent, but to leave them dead, hanging on the wall, hanging on a stick, so that anybody who walks by knows that's what happens when you mess with the Syrian. They scared the crap out of you. Right? They will do it in public. <coughs> so here's the defenders of a city just uh, north and to the west of, Israel, of Jerusalem, Lachish, impaled outside of the city. This is from, and, and Sennacherib, the king, would put these on his, this were his, de his decoration. Right? So if you visit the White House today, you can see like nice paintings of former presidents or gifts from other things. And in uh, Sennacherib's world, you would see on the reliefs, here's what happens to people who don't obey me. They'll go get me some wine food. Right? <coughs> so I just impale them on, on a stick. How about this one? We talked about ethnic cleansing. We talked about how they would just kill people. We talked about how they would rape people to try to make more of themselves. We also talked about uh, public displays of conquest. So here's uh, the king or some soldier with a, a head, a beheaded head of a soldier, and you just put him down here in a pile of heads. And they would not only do this, they would commemorate it with art and stick it on the walls. Here's what happens when you disagree with Assyria. <coughs> Here's a nice picture, right? A typical picture. King sitting back on his royal throne. I want one of these. Right? <laughs> Servants coming and offering. Or it could be the king offering to a god. It's an be one of uh, your different interpretation. Um, and then over on the side, just kind of you've got nice, you know, nice vines, right? Nice trees. And what's that hanging in the tree up there? Someone's head. Right? <laughs> It was important not only to display wealth and all of your bling, but also all the people you've conquered. And you just hang their heads, put them in a pile over there. So, like I said, when you see modern these, these crazy gangster rap videos and stuff, and they got all this crazy wealth and they pow, pow, pow with their gun, that's nothing new. <laughs> nothing new. The response, the, the, the response in Israel, in, in, that, in that region, was to urbanize. Keep in mind that the Assyrians came and wiped out those ten tribes to the north. They wiped them out. Well, the people they didn't kill, kill where did they go? South. To where? What city had a wall? Jerusalem. Okay. So the response is urbanization. People are moving from their nice country estates with no walls to places and cities with walls. Yes, it was cramped. Yes, it was overcrowded. Yes, there weren't a lot of resources. There certainly wasn't a lot of water. The alternative was to die. So the Assyrians come up. They move into walled cities. We begin to see expansions of urban settings like Jerusalem. 
It's also important to find out that coincidentally, one of the things that made the Assyrian Empire so great was their transition from the languages, uh, the cuneiform languages that they used to Aramaic. Okay? Aramaic, I have many scholars argue that it wasn't their military that made Assyria a great kingdom. It was their introduction of, or their adoption of the Aramaic alphabet, the Aramaic language. Um, and you even have inscriptions from Sargon II saying, people of the four regions of the earth, people of foreign tongue and divergent speech, dwellers of all these things. When I came and conquered them, what did I do? I made them of one mouth and settled them therein. They adopted a language that was easier than the cuneiform. Right? All these, the Assyrian language, the Akkadians, and all these different languages, they, um, then Akkadian, then uh, previous cuneiform style languages, they adopted this syllabic uh, Aramaic script and the language, so they could <coughs> change language. It would be as if the United States one day said, you know what, we have a problem with all these different languages. We want one language. You've heard these debates, right? We need to have an official language that we all speak, that we all do business in, and we choose French. <laughs> Or we choose something that has, you know, some, some small language somewhere else. Um, that would be kind of odd, right? We would say, no, we pick English, even though that Ben Franklin wanted us to choose what? German. German was almost our official language prior to World War II. It was, it was, now, what should we have? To, we don't want English because that's what the people were fighting against speak. But we chose English. If we chose something like French to be our official language, we would say, what? Well, we're not French. But if French was just ten times easier than English to speak. It made sense. Well, what they did was the equivalent of that. They adopted Aramaic, this other language, as their own language, streamlined all of their um, uh, communiques, all, all of their bureaucracy, and many scholars argue that that's what made the Assyrians much stronger. Any questions? We will pick up here. We will blow through Josiah and get into the exile, the Babylonian conquest and the exile, next week. Thank you.